Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. All right, good morning, church. Today we are wrapping up our series on sexuality and the mission of God. And after today, Scott and I are going to do a closing Q&A time based on some questions that we've been receiving over the last couple weeks. So we hope you have enjoyed this series. We hope that it's been beneficial for you. Uh, If you've missed any parts of this series, it's been six weeks long. I would encourage you to go back, listen to the sermons that you missed. Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 6. So if you want to turn there now in your Bibles, we're going to be reading a passage from there in just a minute. And in 1 Corinthians 6, and in that letter, Paul is addressing the church in Corinth. And if you know anything about Corinth, you probably know that they were a hot mess. Corinth had all kinds of questions and issues about sexuality and the purpose of the body and what's the goal of sexual intimacy anyway. So this morning, in our closing sermon series, or in our closing sermon to this series, we want to briefly examine this passage, and I want to hold up one question for us today. How is the lordship of Jesus over the body actually good news? How is the lordship of Jesus over the body actually good news? How is it good news to a culture that is dead set on the opposite? Because as we've seen in our series, the good news that people are running towards, whether that's through bodily autonomy, hookup culture, homosexuality, transgenderism, issues of sexuality, even within the local church, we're all looking for good news. And what's interesting is that in Paul's time when he was writing this 2,000 years ago, he was writing this to counter the gods of his day the gods of Aphrodite, the gods of Eros, the gods that promised you sexual vitality, the gods that promised you fertility, the gods that would bless your sexual romances and give you great romance. People in Paul's day were willing to sacrifice and do anything possible to have romantic love and experience. And Paul's writing them showing, no, Jesus is actually Lord. But my question for you today is, has anything changed? Our culture, we ourselves, still will sacrifice anything to the gods of love to give us romantic experience. We crave and long for romance. And if you're a guy out there and you're like, oh, I don't care about romance, bro, yes, you do. Yes, you do. You want to be loved. You want to be valued. You want to receive affection and a romantic, even bodily sexual experience from someone. We feel that we're second class if we don't have the type of romance or love story that we see somebody else having. If you think about it, most of the stories in culture that we are drawn towards, books, stories, things we read, have some version of this narrative. I want you, you want me, or maybe you don't want me, so what do I have to do to fix that? And there's the story. We hear messages all the time, 
Love is all you need. Your life is meaningless without being in love. If you get love, your problems will be solved. You're nobody till somebody loves you. These are the voices of Eros and Aphrodite. These are the voices of the God of love still at work that we bow down to. And as we've seen in our series, the LGBTQ plus community is also on this quest for love. They are looking for romantic love to fulfill them, to restore them, to be their center. That's why people are fighting so hard for rights for marriage. That's why people are fighting so hard to be whatever gender they want so they can express and receive love, bodily romantic love, however they feel they need. And what's crazy though is that quest for romantic bodily sexual fulfillment is not just out there. It's in the local church as well. I think in the life of the local church, we fool ourselves by thinking, well, I'm following Jesus, so I don't follow that God anymore. But friends, we do. The church is just as guilty of holding on to this obsession with romantic love. We think, well, we're pursuing it in heterosexual marriage, but you are still worshiping the gods of love, even in your marriage. The church also is caught up in worship of Eros. And again, this is not a marriage bash. I love my wife. I hope all of you love your spouses. So don't hear what I'm not saying, but I think within the church, our romantic obsession with love, even within marriage, is seen because we not only think marriage is normal, we think it's the goal. The goal of human life is to be married, to have an experience of romance and sexuality. We have sadly made marriage become the embodiment of a relationship with God. Meaning, the way to know God best is through marriage. Church, we have been deceived in thinking this. And this is seen even more clearly because we have no stinking clue what celibacy looks like and why celibacy is even desirable and why it is good whether it's someone longing for marriage or somebody who actually chooses celibacy and if you're doubting me that you that you are obsessed with this romantic notion of love i can prove to you that you think it is superior because why do you think singleness is inferior? Why do so many of us think of singleness as an inferior option to following God? Because we think you're missing out. Because you think you're going to have a less fulfilling life. Sadly, this is culturally what we see in the stories around us. Sadly, this is the experience of many in the local church. And sadly, it betrays the fact that we too are obsessed with romantic love, even in the context of heterosexual marriage. So what does that mean? This means that broader culture, the world in general, the LGBTQ plus community, the local church, we're all doing the same thing. We all think that romantic love, sexual fulfillment will actually deliver. 
we're all worshiping arrows. And does he fulfill? Does our pursuit of the perfect partner, the perfect spouse, the perfect relationship, the perfect romance exist? If you think so, you just haven't lived long enough. Because Eros is a liar. Romantic love always fails us. Because it was always intended as a pointer. It was always intended to be a shadow pointing us to the absolute. So if you are here and you are in disillusionment at love, feeling that you have lost your way, that romantic love has disappointed you, that's actually really good. Because now, now you can go somewhere. Now that you've experienced the crush of realizing that this God will not deliver. Now, you can see that you and all of culture and all of our world is actually looking for God. And this is where the church can actually move in and we have actually something to offer the world. Not in arrogance, not in lording it over people because we have Jesus and they don't. We can say to people, yeah, romantic love has disappointed me too. Yeah, I'm actually just like you. Even to our gay LGBTQ plus identifying friends, we can say, yeah, I'm actually very similar to you. I thought my romantic love and experience would fulfill me too, but it doesn't. Man, I wonder what that's all about. As we've circled back to in this series again and again of asking about the lordship of Jesus and how is it good news, this is where this morning I want us to see that the lordship of Jesus is actually good news for us, for our bodies, for our sexual bodies. So is there good news for us? Whether we in rough marriage, we are in a rough marriage, whether we are in no marriage, whether we are in prolonged singleness, whether we are battling various sexual desires, is there good news found in the fact that Jesus is Lord over the body? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 6. I'm going to read for us verses 9 through 14, and then we're going to jump down to verse 18. Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Some of you say that all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Some of you say all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Some of you say food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God's just going to destroy them both. But the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Jumping down to verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. 
Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Jesus, as we seek to examine what it means that the good news is not just about saving our souls to be with you in eternity, but the good news is about how we presently in our bodies receive and experience your life. Jesus, as we seek to look at this day, we ask for your help, God. We ask for humility. I ask for uh, the ability to communicate these truths that I've sought to wrestle through this week, God. And I just, again, want to publicly thank you for the ways you have met me and encouraged me this week, even in prepping this sermon. So Jesus, we ask for all of us here, for the men, for the women, God, that you, Jesus, by your spirit, would speak to us now through your servant, Paul. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at what Paul is saying in this passage about the lordship of the body, the lordship of Jesus over the body. If you look at the beginning of that passage, he writes that those who practice sexual immorality will not inherit the kingdom. And he says, don't be deceived. Don't think you're fooling anyone if you are living a double life. Because God knows. God knows. God, God will not be mocked. He says you will not inherit the kingdom. And I don't want us to skip over that and jump to the good stuff. Friends, if you are living a double life, if you are living in unrepentant sin, there is no guarantee that you have submitted your life to the lordship of Jesus. So the call is to repent. The call is to walk in the light. The call is to bring all of life under the lordship of Jesus. Because at the church in Corinth, that's what their church was full of. And what does Paul say? Such were some of you. That list of all these sins and all these different types of sinners, that was Paul's church, friends. The church in Corinth was a place where the sexually immoral, the adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, liars, drunkards, and the rest had all now found a home and had been welcomed in when they came underneath the lordship of Jesus. Paul is saying to these people, you used to find love and worth and acceptance by running after Eros in the gods of sexuality. You used to bow down and find worship there, but now your worth and your acceptance is seen in the lordship of Jesus. He then writes in 13, verse 13 that the body was made for the Lord and the Lord for the body, which is interesting because in this series that we've been in for these last five weeks, We've talked a lot about the human body. We've talked a lot about that word teleology, the telos, the purpose of our body, the purpose of being gendered as male or as female. How the body is a gift, that it is on purpose, that it is for a purpose. That God created us with these bodies, with sexual organs, with brains and stomachs on purpose. And that God himself has taken on an embodied existence and what that means for us. 
So Paul writes, the body was made for the Lord and the Lord for the body. What does that mean? It means several things. But first off, it means the way we use our bodies is intended to show the goodness of Jesus. The way we use our bodies is intended to show the goodness of Jesus as Lord. We live in these bodies in such a way that the creator of the body receives worship and is seen as worthy by how we live out life in this body. Because for those who are outside of the lordship of Jesus, for those who claim bodily autonomy, who is lord of their body? I mean, they are. They're the ones calling the shots. They're the ones saying what is in their best interest. They're the one who is claiming lordship. They dictate and determine what is good or bad for their body. But as followers of Jesus, saying Jesus is lord of the body is not going to be appealing to people unless it becomes good news. Saying to our culture that Jesus is Lord of the body is never going to be appealing unless it's heard as good news. So how is that good news? Jump to verse 18 and 20. This is where Paul goes. He shows the Corinthian people that the very God who made this world the sinless, the holy, the other, the righteous, the good, the loving God who has made them in this body has called them to find all of their sufficiency now in him. And he's not just said he's loved them. He's proven it. See that verse right there? You were bought with a price. That's the guarantee that the creator of the world is for you. Do you see how the very core of the gospel, the very core of the good news, the reality of Jesus' incarnation in a body with his death and resurrection is summed up in that phrase, you were bought with a price. And now that fact, you were bought with a price, the essence of the gospel has immediate implications for your body and sexuality. Do you see how he's connecting those two things? He's not saying, you were bought with a price, so you better obey all the rules now. He's saying, no, you were bought with a price by the embodied Son of God that directly relates to your body and sexuality. Paul is anchoring our view, the Corinthians' view of sexuality in the body, not in following rules, but in living in light of the incarnation and death and resurrection of Jesus. Do you see that? This is showing how the lordship of Jesus actually means something in your life. Paul is showing us that the truest of lovers has already come. And he's coming again. This means that in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, not just the message that we initially believe on salvation, but the message that we continually are returning to that is strengthening us, giving us power to fight in our everyday lives. This gospel is where we overcome our worship of romantic love because we see and embrace our true heart's desire. We see and embrace the one who is always 
there for us. When we see that kind of love, a self-emptying, self-deprecating kind of love, when we realize that we were bought with a price, this frees us, this detaches us from the false gods that we are worshiping of romantic love. So why is it good news? Because in Jesus being Lord, your body now has purpose, love, acceptance, deepest security, and you can now discover who you are from a place of complete love, affirmation, and worth. You no longer need to seek those in the arms of another lover. You already have fully received that in Jesus. And likewise, what's crazy, we're not really gonna touch on this right now, God cares so much about this body that right now we're experiencing the decay of that body. What's going to happen to that body? He's going to elevate it. He's going to resurrect it. The perfect resurrected body that Jesus is now in, we too will be in one day. God cares that much about the body. So in light of the lordship of Jesus over the body, in light of the fact that the fact that Jesus is Lord is actually good news for us and for the world, I think there's two main implications that we need to talk about, that we need to figure out, that we need to connect the dots to in our life going forward, understanding sexuality, understanding how we're called to walk alongside each other. The first implication is that I believe we need to break our idol of marriage not by breaking marriage, but by co-elevating celibacy and understanding the place of the eunuch. You might be thinking, okay, what in the world is he talking about here? We need to break the marriage idol, not by breaking marriage, but by co-elevating celibacy and the eunuch. In scripture, both marriage and celibacy are seen as equal in dignity and value. And celibacy itself is called a gift. But often people enter celibacy not at their own choosing, choosing to refrain from sexual relationships. Most people don't, I'm going to sign up for that. Not everybody does that. But when Jesus talks about marriage and singleness, he uses the term eunuchs. Maybe you've heard of eunuch that typically refers to someone who has been castrated and then serves a specific role for a ruler. But most Bible commentators, this is super interesting. I want you to follow this. Most Bible commentators think that the term eunuch referred to someone who was intentionally celibate, not just someone who was forced into being celibate by a ruler. So that means that there will be some people who intentionally choose to not be married and to live in that way. Matthew 19, Jesus says, For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus includes in this definition, I want you to catch this, people who did not choose their condition. Think about that. Who could that entail? Who could be included in that group? People who are living celibately, but not at their own choosing, 
not because they just gladly signed up for that. I absolutely believe that this does include people who are celibate and who are waiting for a spouse, but I don't think that's all. I think this absolutely refers to people who have unwanted sexual desire, same-sex attraction. I think this absolutely refers to people who have gender dysphoria, people who struggle with transgender ideology, but who choose to be celibate, to not pursue their sexual longings for the sake of the kingdom. Church, if we can begin to develop this type of a theology of what it means to live celibately for Jesus, this is where we actually figure out how to embrace those in our culture who maybe aren't gonna be married, who maybe marriage might not be in the cards for them, at least right now. It is here that we actually position ourselves to best love and embrace the LGBTQ community because we actually show them the role they play in the life of the local church. This is where though, we have to realize the robust and profound promises of God to the celibate one. I'm gonna share some passages that are probably gonna blow your mind because they blew my mind this week. To those living as celibate, to those who are not engaging in sexuality, who are honoring Jesus by not being in a marriage relationship, either because of waiting for a spouse, recognizing that the spouse you would want is the opposite sex, by recognizing you have a type of sexual desire that does not line up with the life of Jesus. For those who are choosing to honor Jesus in their sexuality, listen to how God speaks about these people. Listen to Isaiah. Sing, barren woman. You who never bore a child, burst into song. Shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Later on in Isaiah, he's predicting the return of the exiles the people that had been enslaved and far off in their land, and they are now coming back, which you would think would be a celebration moment. God specifically addresses the captive eunuchs, those who had most likely been forced into becoming eunuchs, and now they have no biological family, no children, they don't have a future with a spouse. They don't have a future inheritance, which at that time, that was your guarantee for life when you got older. Listen to how God speaks about these folks. The eunuch is assured that they are not a dry tree. God promises to the eunuchs who hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial. And a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. God promises that celibacy with its unique challenges, will drive you deeper into God. And you will have an experience of a walk with God 
that many only dream of. So are we willing to hold up a high view of celibacy as an equal co-calling with marriage? Or are we just going to say, yeah, everybody should be married over here. We are doing harm to our brothers and sisters if we continue to live that way. Because what's crazy then is that Jesus and Paul, again, that's the Old Testament. Jesus and Paul pick up on the same themes in the New Testament where we see that the church is the true family. The church is to be made up of intense, truly intimate friendships and familial love because true intimacy does not mean sexuality, but the deepest familial love. If you just Googled what the word intimate means, in English at least, closeness, familiarity, attachment. In Jesus, the stupid Freudian theory that all relationships are ultimately erotic is completely undone in the local church. Because in the church, the possibility of true non-sexual intimacy is a reality. And this is why we don't denigrate marriage, but we rather co-elevate the calling to celibacy and the calling of the eunuch by showing that marriage offers one kind of intimacy, but many other roads to true intimacy are possible. We need to recover the sacred portrayal of whole-bodied betrothal to Jesus that celibacy is holding up for us. We need men and women who are willing to boldly live in that, whether it's for short-term, whether it's for long-term. We need to see that celibacy is a needed facet, the life of the kingdom of God. Is there any wonder why we never, I mean, the two most greatest people in the Bible, arguably, Paul and Jesus, single, moving on. Secondly, as we go forward and seek to continually grow in understanding what it means to be participants in the mission of Jesus, I think the church is called, this is our second implication, to welcome the stranger by building wells and not only fences. Don't worry, I'm going to explain that. We're called to welcome the stranger in our midst by digging wells and not just building fences. It's no shock that the LGBTQ plus community thinks the church hates them. It's no shock. Because all most Christians do is communicate why the LGBTQ plus community is wrong. Friends, no one's questioning the church's stance on that. What they are wondering, though, is why should I believe what you're saying when it does not sound at all like good news? Very fair accusation. Because yes, those living outside of the life of Jesus in their sexuality are living in sin. Absolutely. And we need to have clear delineation of what it means to follow Jesus. And we have talked about that in our series. But are we offering equally compelling reasons for why people should follow Jesus? Are we actually offering the world, the LGBTQ plus community, our friends, our neighbors, are we offering them something that's actually even better than what they're living in? Or are we just telling them they need to follow the rules if they want to follow Jesus? Friends, that's just building fences. 
That's just building fences. You're not drawing people in. I read this story a year ago, and it has stuck with me. A story about a visitor to the Australian outback. Has anybody here been to Australia? Just randomly, anybody? No? Nobody's been there? We all know? Anyone? No? We all know what the Australian outback looks like, right? I think we have a picture up there. If you've seen Rescuers Down Under. It's like, it's like huge. It's like you think Texas is big. Go to Australia. Just endless open plains. A man once visited an outback ranch and was astonished to see miles and miles of these farms with cattle, but no fences. No fences. Go to Texas, there's fences everywhere. When the visitor asked a local rancher how he kept track of the cattle, the man replied, oh, that's no problem. Out here we dig wells instead of building fences. Out here we dig wells instead of building fences. Because if you think about it, fences are very impractical. You couldn't build enough fence out there. But the ranchers know what's going to keep the cattle coming back. Really, really good cold water. So they dig deep, deep wells that the cattle will keep coming back to. And I believe in many ways the local church needs to begin practicing what some call outback logic. That our primary job is not just building fences, it's actually calling people to the deep well. I think that we grow and go forward and welcome the stranger. We welcome the LGBTQ plus community. We welcome the wounded victim. We welcome the sexually addicted. We welcome those who are wounded by the sexual revolution as we show people the fresh life of the water of Jesus. We go forward as a community, not only by holding up Jesus' call for your purity, which we absolutely do, but by showing people how satisfying and fulfilling the life of Jesus is. We go forward as we repent, and maybe you need to repent like I do, for only being a fence builder and not a well digger. Our calling is to show the goodness of Jesus to Hampton Roads, not to just make people follow rules and laws. So maybe you, need to repent for just trying to make people follow the rules instead of actually showing them how good and satisfying and beautiful Jesus is. Because often, if we're really honest, often we just build fences because we ourselves haven't even really fully experienced how good and satisfying Jesus is. So as a result of that, we just start building the fences and telling everybody else how their fences need to look like our fences. But we dig good wells when we do the hard work of showing how the lordship of Jesus is actually good news. When we show, like Paul did in Corinth, how our sexuality is not just about following rules, but actually about living in light of the incarnation and the death and resurrection of Jesus. So church, let's, let's be a place where we not only build fence, but we dig good wells. We're going to take a couple minutes now, and uh, Scott and I are going to look at some questions that we have been receiving from you all over the last several weeks. Uh, we've received a lot of excellent questions. 
I tried to preach short so we had some time to hit some of these questions. So, yeah. Each one of these questions is like a whole sermon, so there's no way that you can dig into all of it, if that makes sense. Um, So we're just going to, and we don't want to keep you here for the next four hours, mainly because our nursery workers would kill us. Um, But So these will just be like snapshots, and if you ask this particular question and you have more on it that you'd like, we'd love to um, meet with you and talk a little bit more about it as well. So I think uh, we have like six questions that we want to kind of just address. Uh, and I think they're on the slides show, is that right? Yeah, so that way I can remember what they are. All right, so one question that we had was, my spouse and I are currently not having sex. Is that okay? Um, and I think that's a fair question and a hard question to deal with. And what I want to do is actually on the next screen, uh, share, share with you a passage from First Corinthians chapter 7 that I think most of the time if we really read this, we're like, that's in the Bible, that's in the Bible, okay? And so 1 Corinthians 7 says, now for the matters you wrote about, and uh, you see these quotes where it says, it's not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. That is what the Corinthian view was. Their view was, I'm not having sex with my wife because that actually elevates me and makes me closer to this Gnostic belief that they had. And so they were like, I am more holy and better by abstaining from sex. And so that was their comment. And this is Paul's comment about what they say. He says, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Okay. You, Paul, he made this statement earlier, but this is the church at Corinth. They're saying... I'm not going to have sex with my wife because it actually elevates me closer to God. And Paul's like, I'm so glad you have that idea, but you're all still just committing sexual immorality with each other. Can you imagine a church where everyone's just committing immorality with each other? Like, if that was happening in this church, how many of you check out? Okay, well, thankfully, in Corinth, well, in America, you can check out to a different church. In Corinth, they couldn't check out to a different church unless they moved to Athens. Does that make sense? Like, they had to learn how to work through this together. And so here's Paul's admonition to them. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. Amen. Patriarchy. (laughs) However, and likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. What I'm trying to get you to see is that Paul is elevating the man and the woman. It's not just the woman should submit, but it's also the man should submit. This is a mutual relationship where your body actually does not belong to you. It belongs to your spouse as well. When the two become one, your bodies, in a sense, become one. And so do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent. And this is coming to the question and answering that question. If there's mutual consent, then this is okay. If there's mutual consent that you and your spouse are not having sex for whatever reason, that is what Paul says. But he does say, only do it for a time. Why? That in that time, you can devote yourselves to prayer. Maybe prayer over what is going on and why you want to abstain. Or prayer over things that are happening in your life that you just need to take time away from having sex with each other to actually pray about that. 
And then he says, but then come together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So there's like this reality that Paul is saying for the husband and the wife, like your bodies belong to each other and you are to help each other fulfill your sexual urges and drives that you have, but you are to do that in a mutual consent when you actually stop having it, that it's a mutual thing. So There's a lot that could go into that. Um, did you want to add anything? I have one more comment. That doesn't mean husband or wife. That if your wife or your spouse turns you down one night, you can just pull out 1 Corinthians 7. Okay? <laughs> okay? Like, don't just be like, you know, hey, how about tonight? No. All right, 1 Corinthians 7, lady, here we go. Like, I don't think that's the point. Okay? Like, don't start using 1 Corinthians 7 as, like, your uh, sex card. <laughs> okay? Like, have some understanding. And under, but I think if both begin to live out this picture, Paul will actually, or Paul's instructions will actually make a deeper, more fulfilling marriage. Now, I do want to say this too about all these questions. Let's just ask this question. Why does Paul care so much about this issue? Just so they live right? just so they have holy lives, just so they can go to bed and be like, we have the right moral code and we're going to live by it? Why does Paul care so much about this issue? Glorify God. But what is the purpose of glorifying God in the city of Corinth? Mission. Mission. You cannot represent the new world together in this world if you are just sleeping with everybody. You're giving a wrong picture of that new world in the present. That is why Paul cares so much, not just because it's the right thing to do, or it is absolutely, I don't mean this in any minimal way, to glorify God, but the way we're glorifying God together is we're actually a community that's living the way that the new world is going to look like right now. And if we live contrary to that, we're giving a wrong picture of that new world is looking like, and it's not very attractive. So I, I, I just need us to start thinking like this is not just the do's and don'ts and the rights and the wrongs. It's actually about creating a community of people who embody that new creational world right now. So you give a wrong picture of what God's ultimate purpose is in the new world when we live in sexual morality. Yeah. I was just thinking like even if you remember from a couple weeks ago, Scott talked about the culture of... Uh ancient Rome and ancient Israel where like the husband would have a wife strictly just for her offspring, but then he would be able to sleep with whoever he wanted in culture. Any, anybody he wanted, he would have other slaves, boy or girl slaves, or he could go to the temple prostitutes if he wanted, and then he would have his wife, but that wasn't really about sex. That was just about producing offspring. So imagine then this being told in a community of people saying, I'm going to love and respect my wife. And the wife saying, my husband is worthy of respect because he loves and he cares for me and he respects me. That would be incredibly counterculture. And it, the exact same thing is happening today. We're just going to pornography and other things instead of the temple prostitutes. But so imagine a group of people that actually lived like that. That would be a huge witness for the mission of Jesus in culture. Next question. How should I interact with people who claim to be followers of Jesus but live in sexual sin? So I 
think the, the point of this question is what if we have people or friends of ours who are either living in sexual sin, transgendering in the process or have done that, or are uh, living in homosexual relationships or marriages, and they claim to follow Jesus. So everyone, I think that's the point of the question. All right, and I think we need to understand a few things. One, I think we need to understand categories of people. There are people who do not claim the lordship of Jesus over their life and live how they live. There are people who claim the lordship over Jesus over their life and live what we would say contrary to biblical Jesus-following ethics. And then you have Christians who actually struggle but are fighting with faith and repentance and community and trying to strive to fight against these sexual sins. Everyone understand those three categories of people? I think it's important we understand there's three categories of people. Because in the next passage, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the more I read 1 Corinthians, I'm so glad I'm not pastoring that church. But in chapter 5, the beginning the beginning of chapter 5, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. So it's like some type of incest. And Paul is like, I can't believe you guys just allow that to happen. And so he says at the end of this, I, I wrote you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And we would all be like, check, sweet. But Paul's like, okay, not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral, don't, or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. I love that. Paul's just like, you guys are idiots. Don't you understand, <laughs> like, if I told you not to associate with any of these type of people, you, there's no purpose of being here. That's all these people are. But I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a sister, brother, and is sexually immoral, but please notice this. This isn't just LGBTQ transgender. But is the greedy, the slanderer, the drunkard, or the swindler do not even eat with such people? What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. You expel the wicked person from among you. So, I think this passage says something very difficult and hard for us to hear. But if there is a brother or sister who claims to follow Jesus and lives in continual unrepentant sin on purpose, those are the people Paul says we are not to associate with. We are to remove them from the church fellowship. This is where we get our church discipline passage from. Now, Going back to those three groups of people, the first group, the people who don't claim to follow the Lordship of Jesus, we go and talk with them. We interact with them for the sake of the gospel. Those people in the far right group who are like, I'm following Jesus, I'm struggling with pornography, but I'm, it's open, I'm fighting it, I don't want this, and I'm seeing victory, but I'm not, and the, that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about this middle category of people who are claiming that I can live this way and it's okay. Paul says, I don't think, no, he doesn't say I don't think. He very clearly says, do not even eat with those people. So what does that look like? Person B lives in hope, open sexual immorality. 
You're like, we've talked with him. We've done the church discipline process. You see him in food line, you're like, oh, can't talk with him. No, it doesn't mean you have to, like, avoid him at all costs. What it means is you're not going to relate to him like a brother and sister and invite him into the fellowship of Jesus together. He's not going to come and eat and drink bread with us. He's not going to be a part of what we're actually doing as a church. And why? One, because he's giving a wrong picture of the new world in the present. Two, this sounds really strange, it's the most loving thing you can do. I say this as your pastor, if I ever get into this third category, uh, sorry, middle category, of like living in open, unrepentant sin and I think it's okay, I want you to not eat with me. I want you to not associate with me. Because that is the way that I'm going to actually turn from that back to Jesus. Like, I'm saying that about myself. Does that make sense? Like, this is Paul's admonition, is that we do this so that they would actually experience what it looks like to live in the realm of Satan and then come back. So, I think it's mean. It could be perceived as mean. But I'm saying it to you as me. Like, if I ever live in this middle category... I mean, send me a text and say hello, but don't invite me in like I'm just normal, that I'm part of the Christian community. I was just thinking through, like, this church is, this is what church discipline looks like, and I'm super, super thankful, and I know several of you are, have expressed this to us, but like, that we are a church who actually believes this, that we have actually had conversations with men and women throughout the years who were living in this way, and we would call them, and we would meet with them, and we would challenge them in their views and say, this is actually what it looks like to follow Jesus. And you have two choices. Continue to live as you want, which is not submitting to the Lordship of Jesus, or actually repent and begin that journey of healing and transformation in that. I mean, like, this is the kind of stuff that, like, yes, in one sense, as pastors, you have that weight to do, but in another sense, it's not on us to do. It's on us to do of calling people out of, basically, again, God is not mocked. They're only fooling themselves. But it's the job of the church, all of us in the church, to actually be the ones to communicate that to people. And again, this goes beyond just sexual sin. We need to make that pretty clear. Because I think the church is okay with deep greed, but it's not okay with homosexuality. And Paul is like, no, both will not inherit the kingdom of God, and both mean you get removed from table fellowship. Next question. When should we speak to someone about their sexual sin, and when should we pray for the Spirit to do it? I don't know how, I don't know the context of all of these questions, where they come. But sometimes you're kind of like, should I go talk to that person and tell him, or should I let the Spirit reveal that to him? If you want to go tell him, that's your first inclination. Most of the time, you're a little bit more self-righteous, and you want to make sure they're following the rules. That's okay. And if you are like, I'm going to let the Spirit do it, you're probably a little bit more scared to go talk to people about hard things. Like, just your nature. Which one are you? A little bit more like in their face, get right, or kind of like, you know what, I'll let them figure it out on their own. And, you know, like, I I don't know the perfect balance to this. I don't know. 
But what I do know is that the more that we walk with the Spirit, the more we actually hear His voice, not our conscience, not our fears, not our self-righteousness voices, but actually the voice of the Spirit. And I want that to be what actually dictates how we do this question. I do think there's time and a place that we need to speak, and I think there's a time and a place where we let people actually grow and learn what it means to follow Jesus and let the Spirit do that work. I mean, if you just, a new Christian comes to you, and they have 5,000 sins going on, are you going to list 5,000 things they need to change right now? Stop. Look at your own life first. You got 200,000 things to fix. Okay, like, so it's, that's, I think that's part of the issue. Like, where is this person in their journey with God? How far along are they? You know, do you want 2,000 sins that they need to fix right away? Well, again, why do we go to the sexuality one? Because that's the most important one. You know, like, if they keep sleeping together, that is terrible. But as long as they keep doing, like, the greedy and the drunkard part, we're, okay, you know, we're not okay with that. But we got to fix the sexual sin. That's just the elevation that we have of this sin in the church, where I think, I don't think we need to lower that. I think we need to bring the others up with it. So, yeah, I'm just going to say, I don't know the balance of that, but I know there's a time to speak. I know there's a time to let the Spirit do the work, and the Spirit should be the one that actually determines that. And if you don't know, go find a brother or sister and talk with them and pray with them and say, let's ask the Spirit to tell us what to do. I was just going to say, just super quick on there, like if you think about it, the Bible is so practical. It's so everyday. It's so relatable. It's so functional. Like, I don't know how to listen to the Spirit. What does it mean to listen to your friend? Spend time with them. You sit with them. You ask questions. You wait. You listen. So like, that's a skill to mature and grow in, is actually listening to the Spirit. But then also going to a brother or sister and saying, I'm trying to figure out this discernment issue. Can you help me? Then if you even think about like in the, like the Bible passages in the Gospels where Jesus is actually talking about church discipline and going to someone and bringing a word of correction, you're going with someone else. You're going together. It's not just you as this lone ranger, I am the righteous executor of this decision. No, you're going because this is a community thing. You're going with someone who you've probably already talked and prayed with and really thought through. Is this a discernment thing? Do we bring this up to them? Do we pray a little bit longer? And I'll just say like, Again, because Scott and I get privy to a lot of these conversations. Like, there are so many cool stories just from within the last year of times where some of you have come to us with this type of question of like, do I wait? Do I pray? Do I talk? And like, we pray and we think, and then God actually moves in someone, and they actually are the one coming and saying, you know what? I need to repent of this thing to you. Wow. We prayed, and God worked, and it actually moved forward. So, there are many stories of that too, so. All right, next question. Should I attend my friend's gay wedding? Nate, I'll let Go you for it. that one. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Uh, so one kind of baseline rule I have as a pastor is I try not to bind people's consciences to my conscience. I try to bind them to Scripture and I, you, 
you can take scriptures and bring different principles to answer this question. Okay? Um, so, I'm going to cheat and just say that is between you and the Spirit. You and the friends and community that you're involved in. I, I, I've been asking this question to some people, and some people are like, I'm definitely going. They're like, I don't know if I'm going. And they're like, I'm not going. So I feel like there's like, even in this church gathering here, all kinds of people are like, I would never attend one. I'm definitely going, and I don't know if I should go. Okay, so here's one thing I would encourage. Uh, if you're going to a friend's gay wedding, I think that your friends, this is my, again, this is why I hate binding conscience. This is my opinion. Does that make sense? Like, you don't have to agree with it. It's opinion. I think that you should, ahead of time, ensure that your friend knows two things. One, this is not the best part of human flourishing choice that you're making, and it is not what God has intended. And two, <clears throat> I love you, and I'm going to support you. Now, that's if this person is not a Christian, too. Does that make sense? I was going to say, is that the caveat? Is if this was a Christian gay wedding? Oh, a Christian gay wedding, I probably I would not attend. I was going to say, I feel like the previous yeah. question already answered that. Right. So. That's where I like it. those categories are important. Okay. But I would just say they're not Christians. They're not following Jesus. Like, I would want to make sure that before I went personally, my conscience would know that they know two things what I just said, and that I still love them as human beings. And I feel like my conscience would allow me to attend a wedding if I did that. Does that make sense? Now, your conscience may not allow you to. And I think this is why it's really important. Paul, again, says in Romans 14, whatever is not of faith is sin. That's really weird. For some of you, going to a gay wedding is sin, and for some of us, it's not. For some of you, going to a movie is sin, and for some of us, it's not. Why? Because if you're fully convinced in your mind that God says you should not do X and you do X, you're sinning against God. And this is where that Christian liberty, and that's a whole other uh, conversation, comes in. And so I feel like this has a lot to do with like that Christian liberty uh, uh, discussion. I think the only thing I would just add is, historically, I've always thought the answer was just a flat-out no. Um, but as we have been in this series and have been reading and interacting with a host of authors, I think I would answer this by saying maybe, but maybe not. It depends. If this is someone who I am actively in relationship with, that I am regularly having conversation with, who knows that I'm a follower of Jesus and who knows what I think about sexuality, and they know that, and I've made that clear, but we actually have an ongoing life relationship, or if it's a family member that you have a relationship with, you basically have, you come to a crossroads in the friendship. If I don't go, because of, in one sense, an, an act of, that I think is obedience, that might be the end of the road. And, and maybe that act of obedience is what you think the Spirit's calling you to, and that's just the end of that relationship. But there's also the side of, they know where I'm at, but I want to continue this relationship and show them, even in you making this decision that I disagree with, I'm going to be part of your life going forward. There is that side to pray about and to consider. I actually read a couple different stories of, well, I have a lot of stories I could share, of parents of children who are desiring to be in their kids' lives, pastors whose son is gay, 
and his son knows my dad won't officiate with my wedding, but will my dad come to the wedding? Will my dad be willing to pray at the wedding? And how do you walk through those things? There are just really incredible stories of Christians who are really wrestling with it, but they're trying to walk alongside LGBTQ plus loved ones. And it's, it's pretty amazing if you actually begin to just think critically about this. So yeah, it depends. Maybe, maybe. Great answer, huh? <laughs> if we know our enemies at work in this culture we live in, prevailing culture, should we have a biblically aligned understanding of how he works? I'm going to say this caveat. One, I don't think we all need a, psych, you know, a, a PhD in psychology and culture to, do, to, to live wisely in this world. But I do think it's helpful to know, like on the next screen, uh, in First, Second Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is talking to the church at Corinth, and he says, anyone you forgive, I forgive, and what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Why? Why does Paul forgive everyone no matter what it is? In order that Satan may not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. I think it's this passage right here is just crazy. The only reason there's unforgiveness in this church is because that is Satan's scheme to bring division. And Paul just says, whatever there is to be forgiven, I forgive it. Why? Because Satan's at work to just bring division. And I feel like we could take that we're not unaware of his schemes and be like, okay, how else is Paul seeking to destroy the unity of the church? And to begin to be aware of those schemes and to be aware of those ideologies and those cultural influences of how he is beginning to divide and bring division. So I think it is very important that we not necessarily know like what all the terms mean and what all the deep, you know, at whatever... Race theory, yeah. Yeah, you know, CR, do, we, do we have to know, like, all the CRT, where it came from, and all that? No. But I do think it's important that we understand what we believe, why we believe it, what's being influenced, why this is coming in, what it's doing. Um, so I think it is very important that we give our minds to, like, the men of Issachar. That's a, the, Issachar is one of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, and it says that they were wise because they understood the times in which they lived. I think it's important that we be wise as a church. Not every person here has to do it, but as a church, we're wise to understand what times we're living in. Great, and uh, I think we have two more. What are the real dangers of pornography? Uh, it, it's often said that pornography is just between me and the computer screen. And it's not hurting anyone. Anyone ever heard this or believe this lie? And I think that is a lie straight from Satan. And the reason being is because it, in that particular act, may just be you and the computer screen. But it is changing everything about you and your relationships with people around you. It destroys your relationship with your spouse, because now you're like hiding, you're, you're, you're afraid, you're 
from her. There's a separation that Eric talked about last week. There is, now you are beginning to view women a certain way. You're now like retreating from women or you're going too far with women. All because in the back of your mind, you have all of this pornography circling around in your head and it is actually impacting and destroying relationships all around you. To say that it doesn't change your relationship with your spouse or with women or men around you, whatever sex you are in that, is a complete lie. And I think that's the most immediate danger. 100% agree. 100% agree. And we shouldn't be shocked at this, but what's incredible is culturally, people agree with that. Apart from the Lordship of Jesus, culturally there are there is data, there is research, there are scientists out there proving how pornography is rewiring the human brain, how it's rewiring dopamine receptors so that you don't know how to interact with the opposite sex or with the same sex if it's a gay porn situation. Like you, the, the actual functioning of your brain of how to relate, relate to people because of this addictive tendency is actually doing damage to how you relate. I mean, there, I mean if you just wanna read the secular studies, I can point you to those. But what's crazy is we're like, oh, wow, that's amazing. But it's like, wait a minute. This is what God has already said. They're just actually finding out that that actually re- relates to our like, physiology and our biology. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll move on. Uh, how should I respond on someone's coming out day? This was... Yeah, this was a question that I've really thought through specifically for friends, if you have loved ones, or if it's your children, how do you respond when someone comes out to you? Comes out as gay, comes out as trans, um, comes out as having addiction, again, whatever that would look like. Um, even just thinking for parents, if your children come out, is this a day of mourning or is this a day of rejoicing? Just have some thoughts. I think that recognizing the day someone comes out in one sense is very much a day of celebration. They are refusing to stay in the dark. For some people, especially if you've done any bit of reading on trans kids or gay kids growing up, this is the day that for some of them is the most important day of their life. I think we need to honor that. Even if you disagree with their lifestyle, this is perhaps the most important day of their life. Coming out is the most risky and vulnerable experience in many people's life and story. What they're sharing with you has been years in the making, and to share that with you reflects deep, deep courage. And I'll also just say, this would also include sharing with a spouse about sexual sin that you have. This isn't just about LGBTQ or trans folks or gay folks coming out. This is all of us coming out, but specifically for these folks. So your response in that moment is really critical. It's really critical. Refuse pat cheap answers Use body language. Parents, this is so important for you. Words matter. Don't assume that, oh, they said the word gay, but I know it's homosexual, so let me correct them. Shut up. For real, listen. Ask them good questions. Just try to learn where they're at in their journey. Yeah. It's a a really important day. So don't approach it and like immediately just go, oh, my life is over. My kid came out as gay. Well, yeah. Welcome to a hard journey now that the Spirit is going to equip you and meet you on. 
And again, just even based on what we've talked about, like hopefully you feel somewhat equipped now to be able to have some of those conversations. So yeah, listen, ask good questions. Don't speak with authority about trans ideology. If you, this is the first time you've experienced this, don't act like you're an expert. Your kids probably know more, way more than you anyway about this. So ask questions. Learn. There's, we have some fantastic resources that we've used throughout the series specifically on this, like how do you walk alongside people and families. Um, yeah. The goal is not to win an argument. Say that. Yeah, and the only thing I would add and nuance a little bit is they probably know you already know it's wrong. Does that make sense? Like they, they're not questioning whether or not you think it's right or not. That's why it's so hard for them to talk to you about it. So you don't have to reaffirm your judgment on that. They already know it. Most of the time this is happening when they're younger. Does that make sense? Like when they're 18 to 25, right? Like pretty, their stories are so still young that there's research, I think, Nate, you can help me, like, even though a lot of people come out and claim this, they end up changing their mind when they get older. Yeah, specifically with trans kids, like, mm -hmm. 80, the numbers are 80 to 90% of trans kids who come out, like, at 11, 12, 13, by the time they reach adulthood, they've actually reverted to their normal biological sex. So it's like, don't burn the bridge. You already know that, they already know what you think. And the goal is like, okay, the problem is, is we hate it. Our pride is being hurt. We're afraid for their eternal destiny. It's all of our fears that we just then pew, jump on them. And if we can control our fear with perfect love casts out fear, you can love that kid knowing that it's wrong, but loving them, hoping and praying that through your relationship with them that they will surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. Is that the last one or was there one more? That was the last one. Last one? Okay. That was the last one. So, uh, we're, for the sake of time, I should have said that at the beginning, we're not going to take, like, questions, because um, we could be here all day um, taking questions from um, out there. But if there are questions you have, please come see us, email us, talk to us. Um, want to definitely help and continue to help you walk through some of these issues that are very difficult. Yep. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.